0: Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. We're on a journey through the Old Testament. We're picking up in 2 Chronicles 25 tonight. We're going to knock off a few chapters. Uh, We have, in Chronicles, gone from David to Solomon, Rehoboam to Asa, Jehoshaphat to Jehoram, Ahaziah took over for a while, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, and then Joash was saved from, from death itself, and then he rebuilds the temple. Then in his later life, he sets up a bunch of idols. The faith of his mentor, Jehoiada, doesn't stick. Uh, And he goes the way of the strongest personality in his life. And then in verse 1, Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. Means he was old enough to see the mistakes of his father. Uh, And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, uh, but not with a loyal heart. So again, a different personality. Uh, this is another, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but we have a flaw here. He didn't have a loyal heart in doing it. So we could say this with Joash. Also, he had right actions, but heart issues. Um, the word loyal here, a loyal heart in the Hebrew is, uh, another way to translate is he didn't have a perfect heart, or he didn't have a unified heart. It wasn't completed, and it wasn't finished. So the idea of being whole or half-baked, um, it's not complete, uh, it, he has part of it right, part of it not, so there's a divided heart. He goes in two directions, and that that becomes a tripping point for him. So in verse 3, it, we'll start off the chapter, it tells us all the good stuff, the end of the chapter says here's all the stuff he did wrong, as we've seen the pattern in Chronicles. Now it happened, as soon as the kingdom was established for him, that he executed his servants who had murdered his father the king. They were murderers, so the consequence for that is to be executed. However, he did not execute their children, but did as is written in the law of the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded saying, the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall die for his own sin. Exodus 20. I don't have to go back and quote it because chroniclers quoted it for us. Um, Execution is different than killing. It's different than murder. Uh, It is uh, a civil thing that gets done in a judicial way. It is not something that gets done out of hate or out of selfish bitterness or something like that. So it's an example of a king following the directions of the law. The passage of not killing the kids for their fathers, that comes out of Deuteronomy 24, 16. Uh, he, there's a, an idea here that as a king, he knows what the word of God says. He is then trying to follow it to what you know how he's supposed to, and that's a good start. Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. He built an army according to their father's houses throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them 20 years old and above and found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle the spear and shield. He also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But and a, and a talent, you, you could argue, is a year's wages. So he's this is a significant sum of money. Uh, but a man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, nor with not with any of the children of Ephraim. But if you go, be gone, be strong in battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy, for the God has power to help and to overthrow. You go forward with this, you're going to die. So if you're going to do it, go ahead and do it. But know this is the consequence. You're going to die if you do it. Uh, A narrative from his rule. We get this little snapshot of 29 years of generally good rule from a king. But this is an occasion where he tries to hire mercenaries from the northern kingdom. And from a heavenly perspective, the northern kingdom has fallen into sin. They've gone after idols since Ahab. They have not repented from that. The prophet that shows up. We don't get a name for it, so people naturally try to say, is this Joel the prophet, or is this, you know, Elisha's alive, and this is the beginning of his thing, but he's up in Israel, so maybe this is Elisha showing up and and stepping in, but just so you know who the contemporaries are, um, we're not told who this person is, but they give a warning, and it's a clear warning. If you're going to yoke with the unbelievers, this is going to be to your detriment, so if, as the nation of Judah that's trying to follow God, if you're trying to follow God, but you think to move forward in the world you need to make an alliance with these people, it's not going to work out that way. In a military sense, it makes total sense. Bring 100,000 more soldiers with you. In a spiritual sense, it doesn't do anything for you. doesn't add. And the, the end of that passage, the Lord can overthrow, or you know, he can do what he pleases in this situation. There are many instances in life where a partnership with a carnal earthly ally seems to make a lot of sense. But in a spiritual world or a heavenly perspective, it is not what God commands us to do when it comes to advancing the kingdom. So then verse nine, then Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents which I've given to the troops of Israel? Like I've already spent the money and this is a sizable amount of money. So part of what's keeping him from making the godly decision is the money. And I've, I've already invested this much, I've already gone this far with it. Um, And this is, I think, where we get the phrase cutting your losses. Like there is a point where, okay, you can go forward, but it's against God's will. And now that you know that, you have a choice between following the money or following God. And this is, for some people, a really hard choice. Are you obedient to God's word now that you know it? And do you think that following God's word comes without cost, that it's free to do that? And the idea is sometimes following God's word or God's message has a cost to it. Here, it literally has a cost. And the man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. And that's kind of the spiritual response. If you honestly think your money is just part of this negotiating thing that you do, you're wrong. There is an element to which God is able to bless or not to bless as he sees fit. If you obey him, he can take care of you. And he can figure these things out. So again, it's super clear what he's supposed to do. Don't worry about the costs that you've already spent. Um, maybe you should have consulted God before he made the arrangement and he could have saved himself all the trouble. But now that he's into it, there's a cost to repent or to turn back. And the promise from the man of God is also very clear. If you do this, God can easily make up those costs. And that, that's not a problem for God. I like how Goose, Dave Gusick puts this. He says, whatever obedience costs... It's always ultimately cheaper than disobedience. And as a general spiritual principle, being obedient to God is always going to be less costly than the other way around. The idea is to back out even when you see some costs here. A few examples of this, just like, you know, from our life that we had. At one point, we actually put money down on a house in Crookston, and then we found out that there was land attrition to a nearby riverbank that was going on, and we were like, okay, so the land is actually shrinking over time maybe this isn't the best arrangement to get into because one good flood in Northern Minnesota can crash some property into the river. And so we were like, we really want to get out of this. But of course we had signed, uh, we'd put earnest money down on the house, which you lose that $2,000 at the time. It wasn't that much. It was 2000. It was, but still $2,000 at the time was a lot of money. So if you back out of this deal, you're going to lose that earnest money. So that was a tough thing where you're like, okay, we really felt like the Lord gave us information here that we, need to get out of this situation. And we prayed about it. And again, that was, we had different people say different things. Well, what a waste of money to back out of this deal. But on the other hand, you know, are we trusting that this is stuff that the Lord's trying to give us good information so we make better decisions? And are we willing to follow that that lead to some extent? Um, so Amaziah discharged the troops. He actually makes the right decision. He discharges the troops that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home. Uh, therefore, their anger was greatly aroused against Judah. Why are they angry? They just got a huge pile of money, and they don't have to risk their life in battle. Like You'd think they'd be happy, but what happens here is they return home in great anger. There's an emphasis there, hera, miyad, hera. They're burning with exceeding burning. In other words, they're livid that they don't get to fight. And part of this is because the tradition is you get paid a certain amount as a mercenary, but then the second half of your paycheck came from the loot. If you win the battle, you get to raid those cities that you you conquered. So you take home more than just your mercenary fee. So they're thinking, you guys are trying to keep all the loot to yourself because you're seeing that the enemy's weak, and we wanted to collect loot in addition to our paycheck. So they want the plunder. They're angry they don't get it. Frankly, in verse 10, we see exactly why God didn't want these people fighting with God's people. They're not doing this because they have to and to protect the nation. They're doing this because they want things. They're greedy about it. So making and yoking with unbelievers in this case, really the danger is the unbeliever has a very different motivation for that deal than you do. And the, the yoking with them has a, maybe you have the same action that you're going to move forward, but for very different reasons. And the heart is what God's looking at. Verse 11. Then Amaziah strengthened himself and leading his people, he went to the Valley of Salt and killed 10,000 of the people of Seir. We know from the last chapter that they had, they were threatening to Israel. Also, the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive, brought them to the top of the rock and cast them down from the top of the rock so that they were all dashed to pieces. So we are finally getting to passages where Israel does horrible things. Or, I mean, Judah does horrible things. Like, we got through most of Exodus numbers, and it was kind of like, where are the horrible things that Israel is accused of doing through the Old Testament? Where's the Old Testament stuff where they do brutal things? So, verse 11 and 12, we have actually hit some brutal behaviors. I want to point out a few things. Verse 11 starts with, not Amaziah strengthened himself in the Lord. It says he strengthened himself. There is a self-strengthening here. What's ironic is Amaziah, the name, means the strength of God. So the strength of God strengthened himself is what it literally says. And there's a deep irony to this. It's not a good line. So he gets victory, but there's no mention of God's help, as we've seen with Asa and Jehoshaphat. There's no mention of God's intervention. And then you get this brutal killing afterwards, which is not called for, and the law never says to do this. So Amaziah strengthening himself, the result of that is a, a horrendous act of, of genocide. Really, this is a brutal killing that happens. It's, it's frankly violence that's fueled by generations of rivalry with these people. And the hatred goes deep at this point. And we see that the, even the Ju, Judah does some things that are pretty wrong. But as for the soldiers, and this is the consequence, and I think the chronicler is pointing this out. As for the soldiers of the army which Amaziah had discharged, so that they would not go with him into battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and killed 3,000 of them and took much spoil. They're going to go home with spoils anyways. So this is a tough passage because why did God tell them to send those people home if they're just going to go and raid Judean cities? And frankly, raiding Judean cities is exactly part of why you don't ally with these people. They don't think anything of you. So again, these were evil men doing what they wanted to do. Amaziah obeys the man of God, but then strengthens himself and does very horrible things to the people of Seir, and his own cities are getting raided while that happens. Verse 14, Now it was so, after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, and he set them up to be his gods. So now he's doing idol worship. Like there's a progression here that's not good. And then he bowed down before them and burned incense to them, incense being an image of prayer. He he shows a confused and divided heart. He did some of the right things, but he also did some of the wrong things. And he's mixing the two together. The irony here is why would you set up gods of a people you just defeated? Like if you think gods somehow protect you, why? These people, it didn't work for the. Edomites, verse 15, therefore, now we see God's reaction, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah. And he sent him a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? Good question. Why are you dabbling with sin that actually destroyed the last people that tried this? Why get anywhere near this stuff? You know, if you think about that, like in our own lives, there are things that we know destroy lives. There are chemicals, there are, that we know that there are things that have wrecked people. Yet as believers, sometimes we think it's cute to dabble with those things and to bring them into our houses and to, and to celebrate those things in the same way. Well, they're not going to destroy me like they destroyed the Edomites. The Edomites just couldn't handle it. You know, and there's this dabbling idea that happens in the Christian faith and it happens in the Old Testament too. Why would you get anywhere near these things that didn't seem to do any good for the last group of people that tried it? And then verse 16, so it was as he talked with them that the king said to him, have we made you the king's counselor? Cease. Why should you be killed? Then the, the, why are you trying to kill yourself? I didn't ask you to be my counselor. Who are you to walk into my throne room and and tell me what I should do or not do? You ever address somebody when when you're dealing with sin stuff and they've convinced themselves it's okay? And you try to say, hey, maybe there's a problem with that. And they get really defensive really quick because they've justified it to themselves. They're ready to justify it to a person that's trying to explain a more godly position. Then the prophet ceased and said, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you've done this. And if not, he did my advice. Again, God's intent to destroy wasn't because he murdered all these people or brought idols in. It's that he didn't respond to the word of God when it was told to him. I think that's really interesting. Like the anger of God gets roused. He, and then he sends a prophet that's actually an act of mercy. And he warns Amaziah, stop doing this in the hopes that Amaziah would repent. And if he would repent, God's wrath would abate. But in that warning, Amaziah pridefully ignores it, and God's going to move on with His wrath. He's going to bring about His consequence. So here's how that happens. Verse 17. Now Amaziah, king of Judah, asked advice and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel. So there's two Joashes. This is the Israeli king, a couple generations later, and he says, "Come, let us face each other in in battle." So. Amaziah had his cities get raided by Israel, and now he's inviting Israel to come to war with him. Let's do battle. Um, And he's going to avenge all the looting that happened. And Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son as a wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled on the thistle. So the idea is you're very, very tiny, and I'm very, very big. And you think that we're equals in battle, but at the end of the day, you just got stepped on by other people. That's what's going to happen here. Indeed, you say, verse 19, that you've defeated the Edomites and your heart is lifted up to bows. You think you're big stuff because you beat the Edomites? Stay at home now. This is really diplomatic. Why don't you stay at home? Why should you meddle with trouble that you should fall and you and Judah with you? If we do this fight, I'm not only going to beat you in battle, I'm going to destroy Judah. Do you really want to get into this battle? So, Joash, I think, is at this point like giving him an out. Like you don't need to fight. But at the same token, he just called him a thistle and he insulted him. So it's almost like fighting words. But Amaziah would not heed, for it came from God that he might give him into the hand of their enemies, because they sought the gods of Edom. Verse sixteen. So. There is an intervention, a spiritual intervention, where God allows Amaziah to be blinded by his own pride. It's not like he's forcing Amaziah to do this. It says Amaziah would not heed, for it came from God. So they're in agreement about what's going to happen here, and it's to Amaziah's own destruction. So Joash, the king of Israel, went out, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemeth, which belongs to Judah. So they go to battle. Amaziah directing the killing of all the Edomites makes him a murderer. It wasn't commanded. It wasn't executed. It wasn't a civil decision. It wasn't a godly decision. The consequence for murder is to be killed, and and God's seeing this through with Amaziah. He will face the consequences of his own sins. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent, which means they scattered And then Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Jehoahaz at Beth Shemesh. And he brought him to Jerusalem and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate. Not only does Amaziah suffer, but Jerusalem gets its defenses ripped apart because the leader of Jerusalem is foolish. 400 cubits of wall gets destroyed. This is wall that was built up by prior good kings, Uzziah um Joash they would they've been building this wall for generations and he took all the gold and silver not only does Amaziah get the consequences his city gets the consequences and the articles that are found in the house of God with Obed Edom the treasures of the king's house and hostages are returned to Samaria he loses in a variety of ways military the gates are destroyed Financial, gold and silver is taken. Spiritual, the articles from the temple are gone. And personal, his own, the king's house treasures are lost. Every area of his life suffers because he compromises, he sins, and he refuses to repent. And his whole life becomes a mess. Foolish alliances, foolish idolatry, foolish wars result in a divided heart, and there's consequences from that. If there's any lesson we can take from this, like don't be Amaziah, right? Walk away from this and be like, have a unified heart, have a loyal heart. And with this self-strengthening that he does, he gets a total loss and a weaker house because God's now against him instead of for him. This fall hurts all of Judah. Then verse 25, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. And now the rest of the acts of Amaziah from first to last. Indeed, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? And after the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish, and they killed him there. They brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the king of Judah. He did some good. Did some bad, didn't have a loyal heart, but he still gets buried with, the, with his fathers. More confusion. Verse two, he does some good things. We get a record of these bad things. It's a clear warning. And the warning is about compromise. Compromise eventually and ultimately owns this guy. And it abdicates his impact that he could have had for good. Where Jehoram and Ahaziah were evil kings, they were evil worshipers, and they're snatched away completely, They lose their kingship, and they they lose time. They have very short reigns. Then you get Joash, who's a weak king. He has no roots, and he's easily swayed, and he easily stumbles. Now we got Amaziah, a hostile king, a violent king, who has cares for the world, desires riches, and he becomes totally unfruitful. Totally unfruitful. Next, we're going to get an overall good king, Uzziah, and he's going to bear a lot of fruit. Sound familiar? In fact, if you take this ordering of the kings, I'm just going to read you this from Matthew, um, it matches the parable of the seeds, and maybe this is where Jesus did some of his study to come up with this parable, because these kings in this order look a lot like this. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is he who received seeds by the wayside, Jehoram and Ahaziah. But he who received the seed in stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, like Joash, yet he has no root in himself and only endures for a while, and when Jehoaham goes away, so does his faith, so tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles, Joash. Now... He who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, but the cares of this world, alliances with Israel, and the deceitfulness of riches will choke out the word. He wants to go get loot, and he becomes unfruitful, Amaziah. And then there's this next one, which sets us up for Uzziah. But he who receives the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. There's actually fruit from a good king. So this shows us different personalities, different stumbling points. All of these kings were given the word of God at the beginning of their kingship. That sets them up to be an image of different kinds of people that hear the word of God. And it lands in different ways. There's a desire for sin, a lack for foundation, a care for riches, a care for reputation. All of these things are stumbling blocks. Uzziah is going to be fruitful, but he's also going to show one more falling point, and that is the temptation to take what God has given or that fruit that it results and to think that you should get credit for that fruit instead of God. So chapter 26 sets up Uzziah. Now, all the people of Judah took... Uzziah, which means my strength, is Jehovah, who was 16 years old and made, himself, made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. This is a big one. Uh, his mother's name was Jecholiah, which means Yah or Jehovah is able." Uh, Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. So he did what was right in the sight of the Lord in the same way that Amaziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did some good things. Uh, overall, he's noted as a good king. Overall, he gets a long reign, which is a sign of God's blessing in that. There is no mention here of the high places that he forgot to take down. Kings does make that mention. Kings shows the negative side of Uzziah, but we're going to see, I think, with with Uzziah, there's a a humbler heart, and in that he's forgiven, and those sins are simply in Chronicles. From a heavenly perspective, they're forgotten. They're not even recorded, which I like. I like to see when the sins we see in Kings are not recorded in Chronicles, and it has something to do with how they respond to God when they're told. So now all the people, uh, there's a respect and anticipation of making this 16-year-old a king, there isn't a conflict for the throne. You'd think after a bad king like Amaziah, where they actually chased him down and killed him, that you'd be worried about the son doing the same thing. But that's just not the case here. Um, I think that's verse five gives us the reason. For he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And the opposite of that then is true, is when he stops seeking the Lord, he stops prospering. And so this is a person who loves the Lord, he seeks the Lord, it doesn't say he followed or he did things, it says he actually sought the Lord. So we have to trust that the Bible's true in that, that Uzziah, for a season of his life, really pursued a godly life. Uh, It's a theme in Chronicles that the kings that seek the Lord, the Lord helps. The kings that don't seek the Lord, the Lord doesn't help them. And it has everything to do with how we pursue God as to how God responds to us. Now we went out and he made war against the Philistines and he broke down the wall of Gath, um, the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod and he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. Uh, this is the Gaza Strip, by the way. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal by the name Baal being part of their city name. We know what God they're worshiping and against the muonites, or the Meunites. Uh, just, I, I don't know why I find that so funny. Um, against the Me Unite people. Also, the Ammonites brought tribute to Uz- Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. It doesn't say that he made himself strong. It says he became strong, uh, which leaves a lot more room for other not taking the credit. So he has a string of successes from verse five. He turns the Philistines. He, basically, the Philistines are still in that land that Joshua and the Israelites were supposed to clear. So instead of going over the river to fight the Edomites, like we saw with Amaziah, he's actually trying to fulfill or finish the mission that God gave the Israelites, which was to drive these people out of the land, a mission that to this day has not been completed. God helped him. The intervention intervention here isn't mentioned, but in verse 7 we see God helped him against the Philistines. So when you see he became exceedingly strong, we know the reason for that's in verse 7. God's actually doing some of these things for him and making him successful. Then we get a list of the things he did, infrastructure. He's doing what a king should do according to the rule of kings. Verse nine, and Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the corner buttresses of the wall. He fortified them. And he built towers in the desert, which means those desert areas were areas where people would like herd their sheep and move their livestock. So to have towers out there was like to have police stations in small towns, right? They're bringing order to the land. Uh, He built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, Wells are infrastructure. They provide water for people. The more wells you have, the more easily you can move your crops around and get things done. For he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel. For he loved the soil. We haven't seen much like this from the kings of Judah, but this is a guy who loved to farm. He liked to make things grow and literally bear fruit, right? This is what Uzziah was known for, 52 years of rule, and this is definitive of what kind of king Uzziah was. He was a good guy, and he built up the defenses, number one. He built up the infrastructure through wells and soil and agriculture and food, Uh, And he put the people of Judah first when he picks these as his projects. He repairs the things that were broken. He builds the things that serve the people. This is a good leader. And nations rise and fall with their ability to water and feed people and livestock. It is building strength from the place that a nation's strength should come from. The people of that nation are thriving. Thus, the nation is strong. And the legend of Uzziah goes all the way to Egypt, we don't really see that kind of Im- impact from like really since Solomon, where here's a king that knows what he's doing and he's building a strong, healthy people. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to their number on their role as prepared by Jael the scribe and Maasiah the officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. He had a team around him. We haven't really seen that since David right? And maybe Jehoshaphat. The total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 2,600. He built an infrastructure full of strong, capable people. This is a good leader. And under the authority was an army of 3,700 and f- 1, that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. So we get the name of these people, we get the size of the army, and we really don't get that he used it that much. It's strength through through having the ability to bring force, but not necessarily a record of force. Then Uzziah prepared them for the entire army. Shields, spears, helmets, body armors, bows, and slings to cast stone. He equips the soldiers. A lot of times in the ancient world, you'd hire these mercenaries. They'd show up with whatever they got. You know, pitchforks and staves and... You know, they didn't really have like weapon weapons. But Uzziah's like, no, we're going to have an army of professional soldiers and we're actually going to equip them and get them body armor and get them what they need to do war if they have to. So we typically see the a different kind of thing, but Uzziah actually cares about the lives of his people, uh, the increase of bows and slings at this period of history. Uh, whoever has the most ranged offense wins battles. And here's the thing with ranged offense. It too protects your soldiers. It's as good as armor. If you're so far away that you don't have to use your sword, that's better armor than having to be in combat with a sword. So the fact that he's building more, uh, more bows and more slings says that he's more interested in, you know, sending a bullet where, you know, you don't want to send a, a soldier where an arrow can go because you care about the lives of your soldiers. And he made devices in Jerusalem. I love this line. For all engineers in the room, he made devices. What does that mean? What sorts of devices did he make? What did his lab look like? Invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. Big argument in history. Who invented catapults? Who invented ballista? Who invented large-scale defensive weaponry? And one argument in that is that the Bible has a record here in this chapter that actually Uzziah was one of the first people in human history to do that. And historians will debate, well, there's this other group that did it and, and that sort of thing. And, and I'm not going to say Uzziah's first. It doesn't say that. Um, but it so- does say his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. The danger, like we've seen all of where the seed falls, where it gets taken away. Uduziah is a different kind of danger. As long as he's following the Lord, he gets stronger and stronger and stronger. But then there's a point where he starts to take credit for his own strength that God has given him. And there's this danger of success that's going to come. But first, devices. In the Hebrew, that's a the word means contrivance or engine. And they don't have combustion engines in, in this period of Hebrew language, but it is the applying of engineering and intellect in order to serve and save your people. It is the building of an infrastructure in terms of your military war machine that means your people don't have to be on a field of battle. And if you want to keep people away from your cities, you can reinforce the towers of your city to make it more intimidating to come and attack that city. His fame spreading, then, is part of what scares off the enemies. This is where you have demonstrations of your military weaponry. This is what we can do to you if you attack us. Um, So it's the speak softly and carry a big contrivance approach to life. And that's what he does. He makes devices. Um, He became strong is not that he strengthened himself. It's very different language than Amaziah. Um, But he doesn't do it in foreign battle. The way he becomes strong is he protects his people. He protects what's in his dominion to protect. And that's a form of strength too. Amaziah thinks strength is raiding other people's towns. Uzziah thinks strength is growing some crops. And is right. And the biblical perspective on this is the spirit was with him while he did this. The, the tragic word of the last sentence is the word till. It was, he was marvelously helped until... This is where things start to fall. It's a listing of all these good things and then a but at the end. Okay, and everything went great for Uzziah up to this point. So he's not Messiah. He makes some mistakes. And his fault was verse 16. When he was strong, his heart was lifted up. He started to think he was responsible for all this. To his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense On the altar of incense, he starts breaking the rules because he's above the rules. Success can easily be misinterpreted as we have a special, God's blessing us a ton, therefore we're better than everybody else. And because God's blessing us so much, that must mean that we're more important than the rules God gave. So we get deceived by success. And it's solely our own doing. Nobody destroys Uzziah from the outside. Uzziah gets destroyed from the inside. The transgression against God, he enters the temple. We know he should not be entering the temple. The only priest of Aaron should enter that temple. And it happens very rarely. And there's ceremony around it. There's this distance between God and man that Uzziah is so successful, he thinks he's beyond that. If you don't know what that looks like, go back and watch some 1980s televangelism and you'll start to see some of these characters. There's a few of them around today too. Uh, They simply don't follow the rules because they think they're especially blessed by God. The truth is God loves everyone and he does bless some people to serve the kingdom of God. Um, So he he gets in trouble on this. This becomes his stumbling block. Uh, He bears plenty of fruit, but that fruit actually becomes a stumbling block for him too. So he enters the temple. Verse 17. So Azariah, the priest, went in after him. We should note that by Azariah chasing the king into the temple, Azariah is breaking the rules too. But not out of pride. He's doing it to try to save Uzziah's life. God gives Azariah mercy. He doesn't get punished for this. Even though, So it's not the rule that's the problem. It's the heart that's the problem. Because they both break the rule, but they have different hearts as they do it. And with them were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. So not the appointed time. And there are Azariah and 80 priests that try to stop Uzziah from doing this. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. They tell him the word of God. This is what God says about this Uzziah. And we know that Uzziah knows the word of God because he's been following it. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. To trespass literally is you've stepped somewhere you shouldn't step. You've crossed a line, and you shall have no honor from the Lord God. You, this is ruining your your place before God. They simply state the law. They set a line. They set God's line here, and they 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 set it up very clearly. Uh, you know. Um, If you want the passage, it's Numbers 18, 7. You and your sons shall attend your priesthood with everything at the altar behind the veil. You shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The consequence for what Uzziah did is death. It's a death penalty thing. You don't cross this line. If you do, that's there. The priests don't actually say you're going to die for this, but they just say you're going to lose your honor from the Lord. And that's interesting. So they go a certain distance, but they don't go all the way. They're being, I think, diplomatic. Uh, Not only are none of David's line sinless, there are no priests or prophets that are sinless either. Not until Jesus. And so we see this unites all three. Here's a king trying to be a priest, and, and in combining those roles, he's trespassing when he does it. Because God has a plan. The only king of the only king in the line of David that will become a priest or a prophet is going to be Jesus. And any of these kings like Uzziah that try to cross that line, that's a major problem in God's plan and his vision for earth's history. So they repeat this to him. They are right to call here. The thing Uzziah should do at this moment is he should repent. He should turn from this and walk away from it. Um... Yeah. Then Uzziah became furious. The word there means he's out of humor or he became vexed. Uh, The root word has the indication of a bubble popping. Right? He loses it. And he had his censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests or in front of the priests in the house of the Lord besides the incense altar. So he's literally standing there and like the CGI kicks in and he starts getting like swelling up on his head is a blistering leprosy mark. Um, It is the mark that he's going to be known for. And Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and there on his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. They shove him out. Uh, at the very least, you do not want corruption in God's holy temple. They've done everything to purify this place. These priests go through childhood training into adulthood to make sure that there isn't an ounce of corruption that comes into the Holy of Holies. Um, so they push him out, they physically push him out of the place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out, so he wasn't fighting them because the Lord had struck him. Something hit Uzziah here not just the leprosy. The idea of something the Lord had struck them is more than just the leprosy. There's a spiritual connotation to this. Again, I want to point out the priests are not punished by God. Uh, They do what's right. There are times outside of traditions that to stay within the spirit of the law, you do some things. David ate the showbread because he was starving to death and human life takes precedence over the images of the temple. Leprosy, once again, because of an outside image of an inside work of the heart, it's part of a pattern. Leprosy represents sin in the Bible. This is one more occasion where that's the case. Um, God acts when Uzziah refuses to repent. I want to point this out. He didn't get the leprosy when he walked into the temple. He got the leprosy when he got angry over his call to repent. His refusal to repent, and not before, is when God reacts to the situation. In other words, God can forgive sin. It's not your sin that's the problem. It's that when you're told that sin was wrong, when you fight God on that and you resist that, that's the problem. That hardness of heart that we get. Indeed, he was also hurried. There's something that struck Uzziah to where he also wants to get out of there. And that shows that there is a heart, at least, that recognizes that he really screwed up. So his disposition, his tone changes very clearly from his becoming furious in 19 to he also wanting to hurry to get the heck out of there in verse 20. There is a change of heart. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. Could God have healed the leprosy? Sure he could. But he took away that honor that Uzziah got for the rest of his life. And he dwelt in an isolated house, he wanted to be in the middle of the temple worship, and now he's not even allowed near the temple. Because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord, according to the law, then Jotham, his son, was king over the king's, was, was over the king's house, judging the people along. Jotham starts to take on the duties of the kingship even before Uzziah dies. And he starts to fill that role. This is mercy. The consequence of the sin should have been death. So God allowing him to live and see his son onto the throne and counsel his son is actually a kind of mercy. Leprosy is exile, but it's not death itself. And so God gives some mercy in this degree. Uzziah, despite a life of good stuff, a life of faithful rule, he does so many good things for the kingdom of God, but he falls to this thing called pride. He thinks he's above it all. And, you know, it's sad when you see this stuff. I couldn't stop thinking about Ravi Zacharias, like how much good he did for apologetics in the kingdom, how many great arguments he was able to illustrate so clearly, but his personal life of sin destroyed his reputation. And as a people of God, we don't allow him into the the temple of our hearts as, as much. He's kind of exiled. It's kind of like, yeah, you really blew your testimony there, buddy. And and God will deal with him as he sees fit, but it is really tragic to see a person like Uzziah that did so many good things for so many years, but then he falls to this transgression of thinking he's better than God or that his success was somehow his doing. Years of blessing, quiet peace in the land, successful endeavors, and he thinks he did all that. When you have peace in your life, success, loving friends and family don't come under the illusion that you made that happen. Humbly submit to know that God has blessed you with those blessings. He's given you the gift of good family and friends. He's given you the, the blessing of peace in your life. And he's given you the, the foods on your table a roofs over your head. There's shelter that you get to dwell in when you sleep. Those are gifts. They're not due to your ingenuity. And that idea of humbly coming before God, just thanking him for those things, um, is a lesson of Uzziah. Verse 22, we'll wrap up the chapter. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. So you can read Isaiah and hear more about Uzziah. Isaiah spent a lot of his time warning, <laughs> you know, giving warnings to the kings. So Uzziah rested with his father's. And they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial, which he belonged to the kings. For they said, he's a leper. And then Jotham, his son reigned in his place. That he's a leper just gets tagged on with the rest of his life. Does he rest with his fathers? Yeah, he does. And again, this is a confounding thing, as we've talked about in discussion. Like, there's some sin and there's some good. and How does God decide who gets to rest with their fathers and who doesn't? How did they make those decisions? We're not told. And in that sense, we trust that God's a good God, and he's a good judge, and he knows people's hearts. So he's a great king, an enduring king, a defining king, but he gets this little byline, he's a leper king. Um, and that's what he is, so it's a prideful ending. Second um, Chronicles 27, Jotham has now been serving in his father's place, and in verse 1, he was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the t- I love the little side note that the chronicler puts in there. Although he didn't go into the temple. like He didn't cross that line. So a nice little side note. Thank you for that, writers. Uh, he sees his father's sin for what it is. I think this is really cool. Jotham learns from his dad all the good stuff. And then he learns from his dad not to do the bad stuff. This is a wise son. Do all the good stuff you see your parents doing, all the things you respect them for, and then all the foolish things that you see them doing, don't do those things. And we used to tell the kids all the time, and I've told you guys this before, you can learn one of two ways. You can learn by making the mistake and touching the stove and having a burn for the rest of your life, or you can learn by listening to a wise person that says, don't touch the stove. And they're both equally good ways to learn. And I always invited them to the more damaging one, but they always chose the less damaging one. We'd be like, go ahead, put your finger in the outlet, see what happens, jump off that bridge and think, you know, no, we never told you to jump off a bridge. We always told them to do things that we knew wouldn't kill them. We weren't those kinds of parents. Maybe we were. I don't know. Make your own judgment call. Jotham means Jehovah's perfect. What's interesting about Jotham is that is this an image then of an ideal king? Do we finally have an image of Judah where we have a good king? Uh, Is is he a great example? Um, It's an interesting kind of thing. And we see here this idea that He did all these good things and he didn't enter the temple of the Lord. But we also see that, but the people acted corruptly. So preceding Jotham, they were acting corruptly, but that gets to be part of a note with his ministry too, or his role as king. Um, We should know this. In Judah, under Uzziah and Jotham, prophets start to pop up. So this is the point in history where we start to see all these prophets. Now, in the northern kingdom, we've already had prophets. We read through those before we started Chronicles. So the northern kingdoms had prophets warning them way earlier. But with Uzziah and Jotham, Judah starts to get prophets that pop up. We saw one of them in the last chapter. Isaiah shows up, but Micah also shows up. In Israel, they still have Hosea, Amos, and Jonah that are still being a prophet to the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom now under these two kings, while we start to see better examples of kings, we also see that the people are getting more and more corrupt. Again, don't put all your faith in the, in the leaders of the country. Worry about your own faith. Um, we also see that the kings of Judah are getting more and more successful, but the people of Judah are spiritually falling away more and more. And again, a biblical thing, success does not necessarily lead to healthy spiritual lives. Uh, In fact, it should be something you're wary of. Overseeing the spiritual success with a significant moral decay in the country, Uzziah had a personal leprosy, but what Jotham gets is a national leprosy, right? There's just a sickness going on as this is all happening. But here's the good stuff for Jotham. Verse three, he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He built extensively on the wall of Ophel. Um, In other words, he's repairing the damage that was done by Israel. Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forest he built fortresses and towers. He fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them, just a one-liner. And the people of Ammon gave him in that year 100 talents of silver. Um, By the way, the exact amount that Amaziah paid to the Israel people, that money gets brought back into the kingdom. Uh, 10,000 cores of wheat and 10,000 of barley, the two products that make bread. So not only does God restore the financial benefit to Israel under Jotham, he also brings thousands and thousands of pounds to make bread. People of Ammon paid this to him in the second and third years also. It became an ongoing relationship. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Um, When it says prepared his ways there, it means he went and he counseled God. And this has been a huge theme by the writers. Every single king, we get those cues. Either they asked God about what they should do beforehand, or they came to God afterwards in repentance or in sin. But the problem or the lesson for any person reading Chronicles is you should probably prepare your ways. You should consult God before you make decisions. Otherwise, you make decisions, and then you blame God when they don't go right. Well, you never really consulted and waited for God in the first place, and you moved ahead without God's consent. What do you think is going to happen? So you made your own bet on this one. We have lots of friends that have done things like this, but diplomatically, you don't often like rub that in their nose at the other end because it's not fun to have those things go wrong. But at the same token, you're like, well, you didn't really want God's advice going into it, so why do you think God's going to bless it? maybe seek God's advice beforehand. And we get that language in verse six. He became mighty. He didn't make himself strong. He became mighty. It was done to him. And the cause is he prepared his ways. He, he would ask the Lord before he would go do things. And he did it in the face of God or before the Lord is God. He would come and bring things to God before he did them. Should I build the upper gate? Yep. Okay. I'm going to build the upper gate. Should I attack the Ammonites? Okay, I'll take care of the Ammonites. And then blessing comes from each one of these things. Um, there's no record of mass slaughter or things like that. He simply goes to battle. They win the battle, and he defeats them. And then he, he doesn't take slaves. He just takes tribute, which is a sign of we're not going to attack you. So this particular gate, um, the, the upper gate, we should know what that is. And this is a good thing with Jotham. The upper gate was the link between the temple and the king's palace. So he restored this link to where he could go from his palace and go before the Lord very quickly. Or he it, he had like pole positions, like having a box seat at the stadium, but then not having a door to get to the stadium floor. So he builds or returns this upper gate. It's called the upper gate because the palace was on the upper part of the hill or the higher part of the hill. So it made a strong connection between the king's house and God's house. Ahaziah had no link. Uzziah thought too much of his link. Jotham has a respect for the link with God, and he honors it. So he builds fortresses and towers, again, defensive, protecting the people. Uh, He subdues Ammon, which is an income source. He ultimately wins on every front as a king because he prepares his way before the Lord. It's a great image of prayer. Um, Literally consulting the priests would be how he would get this counsel. Um, There's a Physical path that he puts there. Um, The phrase of the 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 physical path, we're making this access to the temple straight. um, The path to refuge is something that's spoken of often. And one of the Isaiah as a prophet at this time, I think it's interesting. One of the things Isaiah talks about is this path to the to the temple. So this would have been a conversation that Jotham would have been having. How do I make straight the paths? To get to the temple of God, and for himself, he improved the upper gate. Um, but Isaiah forty verse three makes straight the way of the Lord. Um, Isaiah fifty seven fourteen: there should be no stumbling blocks between you and the house. And we get all this language around the sixty two ten says your reason you do this is for the people. If you love the people, you make straight the paths of the Lord. There should be nothing between you and the word of God. It should be a direct line. And you should, it should be like an IV line right into your spiritual heart that the word of God goes straight in every week. And a good leader helps to make sure that that happens. So if Jotham is anything, he's an image of a king that has prepared the way of the Lord. And this is the language John the Baptist uses to speak of Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting that we get this example of a great king. Um, And from this example, we get tons of language that gets used in the ministry of Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord. And so he's a reflection of John the Baptist in this sense. And so you get a good piece of this. And again, from a heavenly perspective, Jotham's sins are forgiven. They're simply not recorded. And you get a really, like, there's very few people in the Bible where we don't get a record of what they did wrong. You have to go to the book of Kings to get that. The, The carnal view is we love to remember what people did wrong. But the heavenly view is there are some people, it's just not recorded anymore. It's wiped out. The sin's absolutely gone from the record. So you get to verse 7, and notice that we do not get the bad side of Jotham. He's, whatever he did wrong was forgiven. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham, and all his wars and his ways, indeed they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old and became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So Jotham rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and then Ahaz, his son reigned in his place. Jotham is so, this is a short chapter, right? In your Bible, it's just a little squiggle chapter. It reminds me of Isaiah sitting between chapters of Abraham and chapters of Jacob. You get this little single chapter on Isaiah, or on on Isaac. Just this little single baby little chapter on Jotham. But you know what God loves? He loves these people, He adores these people. These simple people that simply do what God says and there isn't much to write about because they lived a life of service to the Lord. Simple, good, peaceful, and wonderful. So cherish these chapters. Like, this is the goal. We don't want to, you know trip over our own evil like Jehoram and Ahaziah. We don't want to be weak and not have roots that dig deep like Joash. We don't want to be hostile who cares for the world and desires riches like Amaziah. We definitely don't want to be Uzziah who's did everything right but then got caught up in their own glory. But Jotham, man, a good king, prepared his ways, no record of wrong, tons of fruit in this guy's life, tons of good soil. And what a relief, what a blessing at the end of this series of Kings to just have one. You start to think, can anybody get into the heavenly kingdom? Can anybody get their record right in the book? And the biblical answer is absolutely. There are good people in the Bible where God keeps no record of wrong. It's erased. It's remarkable that this is an uneventful king and there's no big scene of drama or failure. Um, Again, if you want his failure because you really geek out on that, 2 Kings 15, he didn't get rid of the high places. He made the same sins and failures as other kings. He's not perfect. He's not the Messiah. Also, you should note that there is a rise of both Syria and Israel attacking Jotham during his reign. In this book, it's not even recorded. But the enemies of God's kingdom are rising during the reign of Jotham. But for the narrative of Chronicles, that's irrelevant to the heavenly perspective. Because those enemies can be taken care of with a breath of God's word. So they're not that important. The heavenly perspective at the end of the day says, this is a good man. This is what we're trying to strive for. Jotham. And so you want heroes of the Bible? How about this hero that gets barely any record? And we know the name... But we know very little else about Jotham. Israel at this point is full-on wicked. They're actually enemies of God. And it may be one of Jotham's fault might be that he doesn't see the enemy coming. Maybe. But Ahaz coming in, he's taken it to a whole new level. We'll get there next week. I want to end on Jotham tonight. I was like, maybe we could get four chapters. And I was like, no, no, no. I think ending on Jotham is a good place to... Dwell for the weak. There are good kings. There are people that live it right. There are people where their sins are forgiven. And the Bible has an example of that in the Old Testament. Here's one of them, Jotham. Great guy. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for the hope that Jotham puts before us. That there is a potential and a possibility that we can put everything and prepare our ways before you. And that that can be a blessing to not only ourselves, but everything you've put under our dominion everything you've put in our lives, we can bless the people around us by building up the strongholds of the faith, by bolstering our towers and our defenses. Um, We can, um, like Uzziah, we can be a lover of the fields and crops and bearing fruit. And Lord, help us not to be prideful in that, but to be humble and to to see it through to the end like Jotham. Uh, What a beautiful image of a a king that did everything right. Um, And Lord, we just thank you for that. We thank you that you have those glimmers of hope through an Old Testament that can often become very dark uh, as we see the failures of humanity through generations. But we also see that there were some good men, Job, David, Joshua, and Jotham, uh, a hero of the faith. So we thank you for those uh, personalities that they're included in the lines of the Word of God and that we are supposed to learn from this. We're supposed to study it. It's good for our teaching. It's good for our reproof. But Lord, help our souls to be set unto you and to prepare our ways before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.